From the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science, this is Cookies, a podcast about technology privacy and security. I'm Aaron Nathans. On this podcast, we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives, from the way we connect with each other, to the way we shop, work, and consume entertainment. And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, we'll talk with Ruby Lee. Ruby is the Forrest G. Hamrick Professor in Engineering and a Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering here at Princeton. As a Chief Computer Architect at Hewlett-Packard in the 1980s, she was a leader in changing the way computers are built, simplifying their core instructions so they could do more. And she revolutionized the way computers use multimedia. If you've watched a video or streamed music on your computer or smartphone, Ruby had a lot to do with making that possible. In more recent years here at Princeton, her research has focused on security and computer architecture without sacrificing performance, which is what we'll talk about today. For all her pioneering work, last year she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Let's get started. Ruby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Aaron. All right. Well, so you once said that computer designers should work to build secure, trustworthy computers without sacrificing performance. Is this really possible? And has security kept up with performance? So is it possible to design secure and trustworthy computers without sacrificing performance? Um, Indeed, this is not obvious since security requires a lot of monitoring and checking, and that likely would degrade performance. In fact, conventional wisdom tells us that if you want security, you have to sacrifice performance. And if you want performance, you will have to sacrifice security. Mm -hmm. So if we look at past history, whenever the computer industry tried to produce a secure computer without considering performance, uh, these computers did not sell well and customers tended to choose computers that had higher performance over computers that might be more secure. Why do you think that is? So I think customers are attracted by performance and security um, is something that they did not think about for a very long time. And security is something where when it works, you don't see anything exciting happen because Mm -hmm. something exciting happens only when security does not work and something goes bad. So customers uh, uh, are more used to things that they can see and they can feel where security is something you notice when there is an absence of security and something bad happens. So I think it's very important for computer architects to consider security features without degrading performance. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, the grand challenge which I uh, give to my students, my PhD students, is in fact to improve both security and performance at the same time. So this seems like really a stretch goal but we have actually shown that it is possible if you 
considered novel computer architecture design techniques, you can indeed actually improve both security and performance at the same time. However, a lot more work needs to be done uh, before this kind of computers uh, will make it to the market. So your second question, has security kept up with performance? Mm -hmm. um, the short answer is no, because the customer keeps demanding more performance and so performance is continuously being improved. And while security in our computers has improved, it uh, has not improved at the same rate. And then furthermore, some security features that have been introduced have not been used by customers, nor have they been properly used. Do consumers have options in terms of what kind of levels of security we can purchase in our electronic devices? Uh, today, consumers do not really have options to purchase a more secure version of a computer. Unlike performance options, you know, they can buy a computer model with higher performance or lower performance. Um, consumers today get whatever is the default security that's implemented in the computer. Mm. So is it the hardware or the software that makes a computer secure? Actually, you need both security in the hardware and the software. So there are many layers of software and many layers of hardware. And you actually need security in all the software layers and all the hardware layers. So security is like a top to bottom property. It has to be secure at each layer of software and hardware and also at the interfaces between layers. Now, when you say purchase a computer, you're usually just purchasing the hardware and the operating system that is the first layer of software installed on the hardware. Mm -hmm. So that's what you purchase. And uh, today, um, you don't have options to purchase more secure hardware option or less secure for the same computer model. But different vendors you know, can supply more secure computers. And if customers demand this, then more and more computer vendors will supply more security features as required by the customers. Well, over the fall, you did something really interesting. Uh, you teach a class on computer and smartphone architecture. And with your students being taught remotely, you managed to get funding so every student would be issued a Samsung smartphone. You then gave the students a, a hands-on look at the phone's various features, such as GPS and video and sensors, and how they could be made more secure. Can you speak a little bit about what you taught your students? Yes, indeed. The smartphone is a very remarkable little computer. It combines a full-function computer with a phone for communications. It is also an entertainment device. It has one or more high-quality cameras. It's a storage device and all in a very small form factor. Mm. Um, however, the architecture of a smartphone is not well understood. So what I wanted to teach the students was what is the architecture of a smartphone? I wanted them to be able to look under the hood of a smartphone and see what's there. Um, so I taught them what were the subsystems inside 
the hardware of a smartphone. Did so you literally we, open one up? Um, we opened one up virtually so <laughs> we <laughs> could look inside with a video camera. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't encourage them to open the smartphones they were given. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, this is a bit dangerous. So I wanted the students to understand that there is a multi-processor computer inside the smartphone. The smartphone may have like eight computer processors in it. Then in addition, it has a lot of networks integrated, not just one or two. So it has the Wi-Fi, it has the cellular telephony network, it has Bluetooth for nearby devices, it has the global positioning system or GPS for location determination, it has NFC or the near-field communications for, for the smartphone acting like a smart card or a credit card. And then it has the multimedia subsystem, which has audio and video and fancy cameras. And in fact, it has a display that's not only an output device, but an input device as well, because it has a touch screen, has a storage system, and has what's known as a sensor subsystem. So I call this a sensor subsystem, which is probably one of the most unusual features of a smartphone compared to a typical personal computer. The smartphone has maybe um, 10 or more sensors embedded in it um, that are useful for characterizing both a user and his environment. So for example, I wanted the students to learn about this sensor subsystem and two of its most common sensors like the accelerometer and the gyroscope. So these can measure how a user walks or how he holds the smartphone when he's talking on the phone or surfing the web or doing some other thing on the smartphone. And so we had the uh, students get these Samsung smartphones and measure these sensor measurements while they were doing different activities. Then they could see how the sensor measurements change, whether they're walking or running or surfing the web or sitting still or whatever. Um, and then they could chart these uh, measurements uh, versus time and have an understanding of what these sensor measurements do. And mm. later on in the semester for the term project, if they chose to do this project, they could use some deep learning software that we provided and um, analyze these sensor measurements to see how different they are from the other students who collected the same sensor measurements. Mm -hmm. So this was actually uh, quite interesting because it turns out that you can quite clearly distinguish um, one person from another just by his sensor measurements, like using the accelerometer and gyroscope sensors. So I wanted the students to understand smartphone architecture and experiment with its hardware subsystems, especially the sensor subsystem. And I think uh, they generally had fun doing that. 
Um, I also wanted them to think about how you could improve the security of the smartphone using some of these new features. So, for example, um, we could determine whether the real user is using the smartphone or not just by these sensor measurements. Mm. And that's actually a research project that my PhD students and I had previously done. So, like I said, the, the, the smartphone actually has quite a few interesting features that can be used to improve security, but they also provide um, extra security and privacy risks. You know, so it's always two sides of the same coin and students need to understand this. Well, on that note, uh, so your research team did some work on how sensors in a smartphone can be used to detect and, and fight back against imposters or people who would try and commandeer a person's phone to steal all kinds of their personal information, including access to their money. Uh, can you tell us how uh, you and the team did that? Yes. So um, as I was mentioning, um, there are these sensors on the smartphone that can be used to measure a user's motion. So mm -hmm. for example, the accelerometer can measure the large motions, like how a person walks uh, or raises the arm and so forth. Now, now Ruby, when, when you say a, a sensor, is that something that we could see from the, out? like I'm holding my smartphone right yeah. now. Where would the sensor be on the phone? It's embedded inside, you can't see it. Mm, okay. Because all you can see is the display and the camera, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's embedded inside every smartphone. Every smartphone has accelerometer and gyroscope, okay? Mm. So not it's not like a camera. Ones, huh? It's not like a camera. It's not something that's peering out. It's something. It's not like out. the camera. You, you can't see it. You don't know it's there. But for mm. example, in your health apps, when you see how many steps you've walked in a day, that's using your accelerometer. Mm. So it's in every smartphone and it's collecting sensor data all the time. Mm. You know, so your accelerometer has X, Y, and Z axis uh, that collect sensor data on how you walk, okay? Um, mm. And uh, how many steps you take and so forth can be calculated. And the gyroscope deals with your fine motor actions like how you hold your smartphone and rotate your wrist and so forth as you are typing into the smartphone or talking on the phone and so forth. Mm -hmm. So what we tried to show was that these sensor, these common sensor measurements can be used to characterize a user. So if we learned the normal patterns of the legitimate user of the smartphone, then if someone other than the legitimate user uses the smartphone, we would be able to detect this. Now, mm -hmm. what this means, that, it means is that even if someone happens to know your password or PIN and has somehow gotten into your smartphone, Instead of being able to access all your data in your smartphone and even beyond the smartphone, um, mm -hmm. 
the smartphone itself by our mechanism would detect that this doesn't look like the normal user because mm. of the sensor measurements not uh, lining Literally up. because they're walking differently? Yes, because there's differences in the way they walk and the way they, their hands move when they use the smartphone. So we call these behavioral biometrics uh, as opposed to physiological biometrics like your fingerprint or your face features mm -hmm. or the iris in your eye and so forth, which are the normal biometrics that we now call physiological biometrics. Now, the behavioral biometrics like your gait, G-A-I-T, you know, and mm -hmm. so forth, are as much part of you um, as your physiological biometrics. So if we have this kind of implicit uh, imposter detection, then we can detect all the time whether someone like an imposter is using your smartphone. And that would provide a lot of additional security because it's not the smartphone that is malicious. It's the person using the smartphone that can be malicious, you know, mm -hmm. that is the attacker. So that's what we did. And now um, you can't do this just by looking at the sensor data directly. What it is is we taught a deep learning algorithm to detect these differences. So with these artificial intelligence, mecha intelligence mechanisms like deep learning, we were able to detect with very high accuracy, over 98% accuracy, uh, whether this is the real legitimate user or an imposter using oh. the smartphone. And in addition, we showed that if the user is worried about his sensor data, um, you know, getting lost or, or, or uh, hacked by someone, um, he or she may not want the sensor data to leave the smartphone. Mm. So for that, we, we determined another deep learning algorithm that could actually just keep all the data in the smartphone develop a different kind of deep learning algorithm that would detect whether it is the real user or something anomalous compared to the real user, which then would be classified as an imposter. So this gets slightly less accuracy in detection, but still very good accuracy, somewhere around the high 80s to 90s accuracy of detection. So this would be a huge benefit to security since one of the most problematic things is that um, the password gets breached and mm. someone else uses the smartphone, the attacker, or somehow after the, the legitimate user has entered his password, you know, he gets knocked out and the attacker takes the smartphone and uses it. So this would prevent all those kinds of things. In addition, I would remark that, you know, this method of implicitly detecting smartphone imposters is also an example of improving security without degrading performance. 
because mm. the user can continue using the smartphone as before. Mm. You know, the, his applications will run like normal. The sensor data is anyway automatically collected all the time in the smartphone. And mm. its use is done in the background with these deep learning algorithms to detect the imposter. And the amount of computation needed for that is not very great at all. So you can have the user using the smartphone and the detection going on in the background um, mm -hmm. without really affecting the convenience of the user or the, um, uh, uh, the performance of the machine. So what kind of security is embedded in your typical smartphone? And where are, other than what you've just discussed, where are the gaps that need to be addressed? Yes, that's a good question. Actually, one of the subsystems that I define for smartphone architecture is the security subsystem. And in fact, smartphones often have better security than your conventional personal computers. So um, there's not only hardware built in, like a special security processor with its own memory and so forth, Mm -hmm. But also, of course, things you notice like um, the, the, the fingerprint recognition and the face recognition features. But also, together with the IO, with the operating system, uh, smartphones have built up quite a bit of security. So mm -hmm. let's take the iPhone as an example. Okay, mm -hmm. so in the iPhone, it boots up securely, so it has, it has good system security, operating mm -hmm. system security. It makes sure that the operating system that boots up when you power on your smartphone is a good one and has not been tampered with, okay? Mm -hmm. And then it encrypts your data, so that provides confidentiality of data for the consumers. Um, mm -hmm. And then the uh, Apple uh, marketplace will vet all applications uh, before putting them on the marketplace to make sure they don't have well-known vulnerabilities or, or embed malware in them. They also implement all these network security protocols Mm -hmm. uh, that have been defined so far. And um, uh, all applications have to be signed and verified right before they're installed. Then there are things like secure payment protocols, which are also defined uh, using like the NFC, you know, uh, near view communications to uh, check your credit card and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, for payments, and there are even features like the wipe feature. So if your smartphone mm. is lost or stolen, you could remotely wipe out all the data on the smartphone. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, you know there are privacy controls for the user, such as whether a particular application is allowed to use your GPS to determine your accurate location and um, whether you can use your camera, for example. So these are known to be privacy sensitive uh, mechanisms on the smartphone. But of course, 
there are still a lot of um, uh, 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 gaps in this security um, mechanisms on the smartphone. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first example was this logging once and access to everything business that we discussed earlier, where our example of um, having implicit and continuous detection of imposters, or in other words, implicit and continuous verification that is the legitimate user using the smartphone, can go a long way to improving this security gap. Um, another example, for example, uh, is that uh, what's called transient attacks. And these are attacks that happen during the runtime of the application. These attacks happen silently and quickly during runtime, and they don't leave any forensic evidence so that mm -hmm. later on, you couldn't even really tell if that attack happened or not. Now, this is a huge security gap. A lot of times, uh, these attack the hardware today, and, and that is a huge security gap that remains an unsolved problem. What is the biggest mistake ordinary consumers make when it comes to securing their computers? Very good question. Um, we could throw in digital devices too. Okay. So typically one would say not putting in a strong password or even not putting in a pin and all that. But I would say the biggest mistake consumers make is not demanding more security from the hardware and system software vendors. Okay. Um, if consumers demanded more security, the hardware and software vendors were surely provided, okay? And if consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for a computer or smartphone that has better security features, you can be sure that they will be provided. And if a consumer would often choose a computer, a smartphone that has better security over another one that perhaps might have better GWIS features like faster gaming performance, etc. Mm -hmm. Then you would be sure that the vendors will provide more secure computers and smartphones. So I would say the biggest mistake is consumers not being aware of the dangers of security breaches. Mm -hmm. and not demanding that their smartphones and computers have these security protections. How would they do that? Uh, I mean, uh, if they don't have the option of, of walking with their feet and buying something else, uh, how do they make their voices heard? They just have to ask for it. And the people uh, in corporations that buy computers in large quantities must demand it and the vendors must show it, must be able to demonstrate what security their machines provide. The government can request that no purchases be made without these features. You're listening to Cookies, a podcast about technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking with Ruby Lee. 
Ruby is the Forrest G. Hamrick Professor in Engineering and a Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering here at Princeton. On next week's episode, we'll talk with Arestis Papakiriakopoulos and Arua Michelle Mboya. Arestis is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Arua is a research assistant at the MIT Media Lab. They'll discuss why the Google search engine tends to perpetuate some tired old stereotypes and what we can do about it. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton's School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and our future, including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, back to our conversation with Ruby Lee. There's been quite a bit of press about attacks on computer hardware in the last couple of years. Spectre and Meltdown come to mind. Uh, Your team recently did some work on how to try and keep up with how these attacks evolve and how to try to fight them. Uh, Can you speak to that? Yes, indeed. These Spectre and Meltdown attacks are very serious and damaging attacks. So for a little bit of context, for decades now, attackers have been attacking the software and attacking the networks. These are relatively lower hanging fruit compared to attacking hardware, which is significantly more difficult for attackers to attack. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, there have been more and more protections for software and networks, and the attackers are now turning to attacking the hardware very seriously. So hardware is, of course, the foundation of all computers. And attacks on hardware are not only very hard to detect, but they are very hard to fix, especially very hard to fix without significantly degrading the performance. Mm -hmm. So what are these spectre and meltdown attacks? Well, the attackers are very perverse. They are now attacking the performance optimization features that the hardware provides to make the computer higher performing machine. Okay. So the hard the hardware performance optimization feature that they are now attacking is called speculative execution. And this is a means of speeding up the computation by looking ahead and predicting what will happen, which is all done in the hardware, okay, in the processor. The attackers use this feature in a very unusual and unexpected way to not only access secrets that that application was not supposed to access, but also... um, to leak out these secrets to the outside world. So this is, of course, very dangerous because they can leak out any secrets. Previously, they, this, this class of, uh, an earlier class of attacks were just plain side channel attacks where they leaked out the cryptographic key of encryption algorithms. But now these speculative execution attacks can leak out anything in the memory. Um, So this is much more dangerous. 
and more general. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what happens was there was a hue and cry in the industry uh, as to what to do to fix this kind of serious security breach. And a lot of software solutions were proposed, some of which essentially were pretty draconian and just turned off these performance optimization features. But that, of course, caused a lot of performance degradation for some companies. So rumor has it that, for example, Netflix was degraded by eight times. It was eight times slower to get your to stream your movie if one of these software solutions was implemented. So not only is this said and resulted in a lot of um, uh, lawsuits and so forth, um, but in subsequent months, more and more of these kinds of attacks showed up. So since January 2018, about 20 or more of such similar speculative execution attacks emerged, each one different, and each one such that the previously proposed solution could not defend against the new attack. So we thought this was not the proper way to deal with new attacks and um, being computer architects and hardware people, we wanted a better solution that was more general. So we didn't want a new countermeasure for each new attack. We wanted to find out what were the root causes of this big class of attacks. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we analyzed all the attacks and we identified the minimum number of critical steps that each attack must go through in order to be a successful attack. And we designed a new attack graph that would cover all the attacks. So this uh, shed light on what were some of the pain points and critical steps in the attacks. Um, And what this does is that it says if you don't want one of these attacks to succeed, even a new one of this kind of attacks, you can prevent one of these critical attack steps from happening. And if you do that, then the attack will not succeed. So this then resulted in defining a bunch of defense strategies that could be used to stop this whole class of attacks. So then we looked at all the many solutions that had been proposed in the computer architecture research community by hardware designers. And we saw that every one of the specific solutions they propose could be classified under one of our defense strategies. Mm -hmm. So we think this is a very general understanding of this class of attacks as well as how to do defenses against these attacks. 
why do you think cyber attackers have the upper hand against consumers um, a lot of the time, even savvy consumers with every tool at their disposal? The issue with cyber attackers is that they only need to find one attack path into the computer. So one set of vulnerabilities by which they could get inside the computer and do something bad, okay? Mm -hmm. Whereas defenders in general have to defend on all fronts, okay? So this is quite a bit harder because you don't know where the attacker will strike. And so it is necessary to defend on all fronts. And of course, it's quite expensive and time-consuming to check all fronts all the time. That's why, you know, attackers have the upper hand. In addition, um, today, our computers and smartphones have only a few major hardware and operating system vendors. So when an attacker finds a path into the system, he or she can use that attack path on many systems since they all tend to have the same hardware and the same operating system software. So the hardware like from Intel or AMD or ARM processors, you know, and the software from like Microsoft or Apple or Google. So you once said that improving cybersecurity is a little like improving the environment, uh, although no one single entity is ultimately responsible. Everyone should be aware of the consequences and, and do their part. Whose responsibility is cybersecurity? If, if not one entity, then what responsibility falls upon individuals, corporations, the government, academia, or others? Yeah, this is a very good question. Basically, everyone is responsible. So um, we believe that consumers should be protected, even if they're not very savvy about cybersecurity. And so the first responsibility we feel belongs to the companies that supply the hardware, the operating systems, and the networking services. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these... Uh, hardware vendors, software vendors, especially system software vendors and internet service providers should provide the best security that they can. And furthermore, they should try to check that their security systems work with the other people. So the software people's systems work with the hardware people's systems and with the networking people's security systems, because mm-hmm. security is not only a top to bottom feature, but it's also an end to end feature. So you need the basic computing and networking and software infrastructure to be secure. Well, then after that comes the applications programs, which run on top of the operating systems. So all these third-party application systems, developers, software writers, um, should try to write secure programs. Now, of course, not all of them are very security savvy. So um, 
the companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft should provide good software development environments so that the best security practices can be easily integrated into the software applications. Okay, then we have the um, marketplace people like the Apple marketplace or the Android marketplace. And these marketplaces where applications can be bought and downloaded from, they should vet all the applications and make sure that they don't have malware or that they don't have well-known vulnerabilities. Um, in them before they allow these applications uh, to be installed on the smartphones and other devices. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, you know, comes at quite a cost because when you want to experiment and you want to install your own smartphone, we in our class couldn't use the iPhone because of its closed marketplace. Um, and its difficulty with installing your own software. So yeah. we had to use Android smartphones where they allow an open installation <laughs> mechanism. Mm. So there is a price for this kind of vetting. Um, mm. And then, you know, um, what happens to the government? Well, basically one hopes that the open market will solve the security problem in the sense that if consumers demand security, um, manufacturers will produce more secure computers. But if this kind of uh, method does not work, then government may have to come in uh, to establish policies or laws. An example may be in the use of smart seats for, for, for safety belts and, and um, uh, car seats for children, um, you had to have a law that says manufacturers must provide seat belts that hold car seats and so forth. And consumers driving cars with young children must put their children in car seats if they're under certain weight or certain age. So that's where um, government could come in. And then with all these large corporations, including government and military and, and business corporations and enterprises, when they buy computers, they should implement best practices and buy secure computers and also implement the security correctly. And then, you know, there's this challenge of providing better security because as we provide better security, the attackers get smarter and they learn to bypass our new security mechanisms. So it's a continual cat and mouse game. And you need the researchers in academia and in the research institutions uh, to come up with better security mechanisms. And in fact, with mechanisms, as I have said, that would improve security and improve performance at the same time. And these are huge research challenges. And then finally, the average consumer also has some power um, to request and buy only those computers that have the necessary security features um, rather than going only for better performance. 
and uh, better WYSI features. So I think in that sense, you know, everybody has a role to play in improving cybersecurity, just as everybody has a role to play in improving the environment. So just a note before we go, um, you were the second woman to achieve tenure uh, at the School of Engineering and Applied Science uh, back in 1998. Um, you are also the first woman at our school to have been given an endowed chair. Uh, what was that experience like entering a largely male institution and how have things changed both here and uh, in the field of engineering in general? Okay, that's an interesting question, Aaron. So I think things have improved uh, and um, uh, there are now more women faculty and women students in engineering. There are definitely more undergraduate women engineering students here at Princeton. So you will see at least a few women in each engineering class rather than all men. But the pipe is still very leaky. So there are much fewer graduate engineering students who are women and fewer yet assistant women faculty and then fewer yet full professors, associate or full professors that have been tenured as engineering female faculty. So um, this is true all over the country and it's improving, but uh, there's still a long way to go. What made you endure? Uh, what made you persist? Um, I actually just never thought about these matters very much. I basically always did what I wanted to do. And um, in Silicon Valley uh, at Hewlett Packard, where there was a very good cultural environment, I didn't really feel any bias against me as a woman engineer, or in fact, as a leader of many groups. Um, I actually felt it more <laughs> when I came to the East Coast and it, back into academia. Um, so I think there are a couple of things we could do. One is being done these days, which is to cut out both the intentional and unintentional biases against women in engineering. And this can be done in a positive way by emphasizing the benefits of diversity to solutions, um, etc. If you get diverse people to look at a solution, they come up with better solutions. Mm -hmm. And a second thing I might suggest uh, is that we should look at those professions have done very well in increasing the numbers of women. For example, the medical profession. Uh, a few decades ago, there may have been very few women doctors, but today there are a lot of women doctors and they are very successful and a lot of patients particularly like women doctors. So I think we can learn from them and see uh, what they did that was good. So I think there's a lot of uh, uh, hope for optimism in this area. 
women who want to do engineering should just go into it and not feel constrained in any way. And um, they should know that they would be doing a lot to help improve society and humanity, especially if they go into an area like cybersecurity. <laughs> I, I want to thank you. Uh, this has been very interesting and, and quite, quite enlightening. Great. Thank you, Erin. It's been fun. Well, we've been speaking with Ruby Lee. Uh, Ruby is the Forrest G. Hamrick Professor in Engineering and a Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering here at Princeton. I want to thank Ruby, as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. Thanks as well to Emily Lawrence, Molly Sherlock, Steve Schultz, and Neil Adelinter. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Watch your feed for another episode of Cookies soon. Peace.